welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. If you do have your Bibles, your Bible app, feel free to open to the passage. We're going to spend the first half in our text, and then the second half, hopefully, trying to apply it to us today. Again, 1 Samuel 1, 21 to 28. I really feel like Uh, You could probably apply this to just about any passage, but specifically today with what we're going to look at, we can see just the sovereignty of God. And as we walk through uh, the next couple of months, we're going to be within 1st and 2nd Samuel looking at some of the different people and characters within the stories. And just, it's incredible how God's hand is, is in and around so much. And maybe it's easier for us because we're, you know, so far removed. It's in the Bible. Many of us believe the Bible is God's word. So it's easy for us to look at it and say, yes, God is evident throughout this entire thing. But for some of us, depending on our circumstances, what's going on, uh, what's most recent in our life, it's hard for us to feel that same way about our own lives. And I really want to argue today that um, he is, he is very, very active and still very, very sovereign over our lives today. So we know that uh, throughout this text, there's a big transition going on here with the people of Israel. They're going to be moving from um, having judges that were supposed to be leading and guiding them. Uh, Samuel is going to be uh, the last one, and he's also going to be the first of the prophets that are then going to become very, very active with uh, relaying God's message. But then we're going to move Uh, alongside the prophets, we have these kingdoms that are going to come in and be established pretty soon. We're going to look uh, into Saul, who's going to be the first king, Uh, and then we're going to transition into David, who is going to be arguably the the greatest uh, human king that the Israelites had um, experienced. But I think to, to, you know, really put this in perspective for us, we need to take a couple steps back uh, get an idea of, of uh, where these folks are that we're going to be looking at today, uh, what the context that they were sitting in to, to give us a real full appreciation of this transition that we're going to see in this text. So we go all the way back to, to Genesis in um, about 1,100 years prior to, to the events that we're going to look at today. In Genesis 17, 1 through 6, it says, Uh, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham." For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And then again in Genesis 35, verse 11, God is speaking to Jacob, and God said to him, 
I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And I know for a long time when I've, when I've been familiar with this text about, about Saul that we're going to look at in a couple weeks, um, I used to think that the Israelites were just being so rebellious and they wanted a king just like everybody else. Um, but the truth is God had prophesied a long time ago that he was going to bring kings and kingdoms into this nation. And so many of these people are aware of this. So this is uh, something that was probably passed down. They knew that kings were coming. Um, and then in our narrative, uh, which we find they're about three to four, maybe five generations removed from the Exodus. Another one of those huge events within the nation that uh, many, if not all of them, are completely aware of. So God bringing them out of bondage, bringing them out of Egypt, freeing them from sla- enslavement. And then maybe a generation beyond that, because we know many of them died before they were able to see the promised land, God used Joshua and many others about two generations prior to the the people we're going to look at today. Uh, He used them to have this conquest and and to to receive the land that God had promised to them. So just, you know, maybe uh, great-grandparents, maybe some uh, great-great-grandparents, maybe some grandparents, uh, you know, experience these events. And then maybe some of them were, you know, favorite bedtime stories that they would tell about how they conquered certain nations, how God just gave them lands. Amazing stories. Unfortunately, many of the individuals um, surrounding the the family that we're going to look at also experienced a a very difficult time under the judges. If we we had spent time looking at the judges... um, it was summed up really well. One of the commentaries I looked at by Brueggemann, uh, he reminds us in his commentary that by the end of the book of Judges, Israel is shown to be a community in moral chaos, engaged in brutality, uh, betrayed by undisciplined religion. Israel does not seem to have the capacity or the will to extricate itself from its troubles. Basically, there were a lot of problems. They were struggling. And this is the setting that we find them in. We're going to take a look at uh, some common folks that God uses to, uh, to impact this nation. And Pastor John did a, a fantastic job bringing us up to speed with, with those specific individuals uh, last week. So let's go back into the text. I've kind of tried to uh, bring us up to date, make make us feel a little more familiar with what, these, what this family was going through, things that they were aware of, things that were familiar to them. And here we find ourselves in, in 1 verse 21. And um, the first thing that I want to point out is that a vow is made. Okay, a vow is made. Verses 21 to 23. The man Elkanah in all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. So here we are. We can probably guess that we're about um, 
It's about three, three months removed from, from last week's events of uh, Elkanah uh, knowing his wife, and then uh, she conceived and brought forth a child, nine, eight, nine months, we don't know for sure, uh, later. And then three months later, they're getting ready to go back on that journey that we just talked about uh, last week, going to make sacrifice, okay? So you can kind of just picture them there, Okay? Getting ready. It, I mean, it's a big trip. It takes about two days of travel just to get to where they're going in Shiloh. Okay, so they're getting ready, making preparations, uh, maybe uh, talking in the uh, living room. And uh, Elkanah's like, hey, we're getting ready to make the yearly trip. Um, Hannah responds to him, I want to wait until uh, our child, Samuel, is no longer dependent on me. And At this point, what's interesting, if we look back um, in Numbers 30, it talks about vows and how when women in this culture, if a woman made a vow, the husband actually had complete authority to overrule that and say, you know, no, that doesn't count, or hey, let's let's do this a different way. And it's interesting to see that he, he, in a way, he kind of submits, or at the very least, he supports her decision. And to me, it's very peculiar Considering that what we know of these characters, what we learned last, last week is that um, Elkanah had probably um, come together and married Hannah. They had maybe 10 years of trying to have a child. And more than likely because of that, he ended up marrying someone else because having a child and passing on uh, your name was such a big deal. He even married someone else to make sure that his line would continue. And so in this scenario, 10 years of trying, here we find Hannah finally being able to conceive and bring forth a child. But what does she do? So what does she do in that circumstance? With all that in mind, what does she do? She makes a vow. And she commits, as soon as the child is weaned, I will, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. So Hannah here is making her intentions and her beliefs very clear. It's right here in the text. Elkanah supports it. He didn't have to, but he does. But what, one thing we need to realize from this is that our creator, the creator's sovereignty doesn't require him to make vows with us, his creation. But we see throughout Scripture, he does anyway. It's amazing. He is under no obligation to make a commitment to us, his creation, and to stick to it. Uh, but we'll see later. He does just that. Um, the next verse, so in, in uh, verse 24, we see that a promise is kept. So a vow is made, and the vow isn't just empty because we see here that she keeps the, she keeps the promise. So verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bowl and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Okay, so keep in mind, um, the, the weaning process, so the process of a child no longer being dependent on his mother, uh, it could take about two to three years for this to take place. So basically, the child is no longer uh, requiring the mother to feed them. He, he has a little bit more independence, or she has a little more independence um, at this point. And so she was waiting for this time. So it's about two to three years. And in this time, 
She still has in mind this vow that she had made, and now comes the time for her to make this commitment. Okay? Plenty of time to change her mind. And here's where we see Hannah turns her intentions and beliefs into action. And I know for a lot of us, that's where it really gets difficult. For me, um, I, I can't I can't imagine, thankfully I've not been in this situation, but I can't imagine wanting and longing for a child for that long of a period and then even being able to say, I'm going to give them back to the Lord and then to still have another time frame, another time period to, to, to be like, okay, am I really going to stick with this? Am I really going to make this commitment? And she does. But you know what we never have to worry about is God when he makes a promise to us. Because he always keeps his promises. But going back to the, the, um, the situation in the text, as we move on, we see that a sacrifice is given. Okay, in verse 25 to 28. So let's take a look at that. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So two to three years removed from uh, his birth, but probably three to four years removed from that situation where uh, Hannah comes into the temple. She's sitting there uh, silently praying. Okay, so kind of just it looked like she was mumbling something to herself. Eli, the priest, comes over. He sees her, and what does he say? You know, stop drinking. Uh, you know, obviously the way she was conducting herself, it, it, it impressed upon him that she was drunk. And so he encourages her, drinking, this is not good for you. Um, and she says, no, 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 that's not what's going on here. And so she explains to him, I really, really want a child. And I'm just begging God to give me a child. So here we are, several years removed from that. And it seems like both of them remember this situation. Obviously, Hannah does. But it seems like Eli remembers this situation. Now, Hannah, having this child, and Elkanah too, they're responsible for his upbringing. They're responsible for his growth, for his maturity, for his learning, for his development. And she chooses intentionally to put him on a very specific path that is not going to allow her to participate in those things. So we see a physical sacrifice was given. Uh, They brought a bull, flour and wine. This was very typical with a vow like this that was made. Nothing unusual here for them consecrate this vow that was made. But you got to imagine, there must have been a tremendous, tremendous emotional sacrifice that was made at this time too, on Hannah's part, in Elkanah's. She knows, beginning this journey, in the end, when I drop him off, he is not coming back home with me. It's so encouraging to see how how she handles this. But God's gift was greater than Hannah's need. So and from her perspective, what we can see from this text, just the fact that God granted her request, he turned the womb that she had that was barren into something that could produce offspring, 
And it happened. Just the fact that God did that, it seems that was more valuable to her than actually receiving her child. And in the text here, it says, uh, therefore, in verse 28, um, so, so what this does is it kind of indicates like this, this climax to this, to this text right here. So her offer of the boy is a faithful counterpart to her vow. Okay, so it goes along with it. But barrenness ends by the power of God, and in glad, trustful worship, she pre- presents him to Eli. God has provided a sacrifice for us, too. And I know we're, a lot of us are familiar with this, but so, so, so looking at this situation, this text, and to see what happened with Hannah and, and Eli and Samuel, I think the next thing we need to ask ourselves is, well, what about me? How does this text impact me? What am I supposed to walk away with this? What about me? How does this influence us today? So as we move on, we can see that another vow has been made. Okay, so what about me? Now remember that Hannah was faced with a scenario to her with not being able to produce a child for, you know, 10 years, something to most people that would seem impossible. But for us, just as a human race, we're also stuck. We're born into this impossible situation. You see, when we are born, we are born completely in the flesh, separated from a relationship with God. And for us, like Hannah, we're in this situation with no way to resolve it ourselves. We are left and without a power to fix this problem. So please go with me to Ephesians 2. And I didn't mark this on purpose so that I would actually have to turn and give you guys time to to turn to. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And I can try to explain it to the best of my ability, but I think, you know, if we go to the text, it's, it's worded the best that it can be. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, so by birth, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And that's the state that all of us are born into. In Genesis 3, 14 through 15, we see God telling Satan that eventually a son of man will come and defeat him. So all the way back in the garden, when humans are first created, first walking with God, relating with God, when Satan comes in and tries to destroy everything that God had created, everything that God had called good, after the event of Adam and Eve sinning, God says, look, it's not going to stay like this forever. I am going to provide a way. I'm going to provide someone who will fix this and who will destroy you. 
And then when we skip ahead all the way to the beginning of what we have is the New Testament in Luke 1, Mary receives word of her coming pregnancy. And so we, we see all of this coming full circle. And God's sovereignty doesn't require him to make vows. Again, but he chooses to do it anyway. So he didn't have to fix this problem. He could have just wiped out everything and started all over because he's the creator. But he made a vow. And then not only that, we see a promise is kept. So if we turn over to Luke 2, a lot of us are hopefully familiar with this. Luke 2, uh, 1 through 7. You don't have to turn. Luke 2, 1 through 7. I know that in many ways, um, we, have, we have earthly examples, okay? So mothers, fathers, uh, other people that we know. Um, and, and when they make promises, when they make a vow to us, it, it's not always perfect. They don't always keep it. But when God does, he keeps it. In 2, 1 through 7, Luke 2, 1 through 7, we have, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be re- registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, he was with child, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so we see this promise that God had made all the way back around the time of creation. We see it coming to fruition. So what did God do? He sent a substitute for those humans, all of us, who are born in that natural state, bent toward obeying and, and, and acting like the prince of the power of the air, walking in our trespasses and sins, in that state, he sent us someone who was without all of that, who was perfect and able to make a sacrifice, which brings us to a sacrifice is given. So God made a vow, he kept that promise, and in the end, he made a sacrifice that was given for us. So just like the other vows that we see throughout the Old Testament, a physical sacrifice was made, and that sacrifice was Jesus Christ. So Jesus, when he came, he didn't remain a baby. He lived his life. He had a ministry on earth that we've seen, about three to four years of it, when we look at the text. And then he made a sacrifice. Now again, turn one more place with me to Hebrews 9. And I want you to see this. Um, Hebrews is one of those books that we know it's great, but sometimes we don't spend any time in it. Um, So let's go ahead and spend some time. Hebrews 9. It also also might be one of those where you kind of, you know it's like toward the end of the New Testament, but you're not quite sure. You know it's before Revelation, uh, but it's before James and after Timothy and Titus. So right there in the middle. Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. A sacrifice is given. Okay? Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. 
For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priests enter the holy places every year with blood that is not of their own. For then he would have repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He became that sacrifice. We look over a page or two, depending on the size of your, your font, in 10, 11 through 14. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you guys get that? He sat down, not needing to do anything else, completed. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God made a promise. He kept that promise and he provided a sacrifice for us, for you. That commentary I read by uh, Brueggemann, he, he summed up this passage so well and linked it to us together for today. He says, The narrative wants us to notice Yahweh as the key actor. The narrative invited us to wait in our trouble with such a focus on God, to see if our prayers can be uttered, if vows can be made, if gifts can be received, if thanks can be rendered, if worship can be enacted. When all of that becomes possible among us, we are prepared for the story of Israel's new life. Now, having witnessed Hannah and Samuel's account, having been reminded of what God has done for you personally, I ask you, how will you respond? I'm going to call an audible. Um, I have never heard that first song that was sung, um, the video for communion. So what I would like for us to do, and I would just humor me with this, I'm going to ask the tech team to play that first video through again. And without any distractions, I would appreciate if you guys would just close your eyes and pay attention to what this song is talking about. Because I really feel like it just kind of sums up everything that I wanted to say, and it says it so much better. And I just love music. Um, so I'm going to ask them to, to play that when they're ready. Again, to not have any distractions or anything. They're really pretty pictures. 
and they put the words up there for you, so if you want to look at it, it's fine. But I know for me, if I just close my eyes, spend a little time in worship, I think it's going to benefit me greatly going forward. So I want to offer that to you guys too.